New Testament metaphors about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope you've been finding them to be helpful and instruct, instructive uh, as we come to a spiritual understanding of the importance of the local church. There is nothing, brethren and sisters, so important to God on earth today than his church. And yet we make so little of it, and yet our acclamation of it is really a, of second rate. We've been looking in the past few weeks, coming up to the end of the old year, what it is to be part of Christ's visible church, uniting with others of like precious faith, a gathering, a collective gathering of God's redeemed people, baptized in the name of the triune God, receiving the, the God-ordained ordained means of grace, living under the care of God's under-shepherds. That's what it is to be part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The importance of the church is seen in that when God saves someone, he translates them, the Bible says, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He takes them from the world and he puts them into the church. And there they are secured and placed for all of God's eternity. And we become something larger than ourselves. I've said this often over the past few weeks, but it is worth repeating. When God saves a soul, he doesn't ask that soul to go to heaven on a solo run. Jesus died for his church. He just didn't die for you and die as individuals. He died for the body collectively. And we're part of that bigger, broader picture. We're part of something larger than ourselves. We're part of the family of God. We're the children, the Bible says, of the living God. And here, in this imperfect state of sanctification... God has placed us within the church. And what is his purpose in placing saved sinners in the church? In order that they might be more sanctified, that they might be more conformed every day to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the church really is a state of grace. And we should view it like that. We've been considering it over the past few weeks. The church is the body of Christ. How Christ loved the body. And he's placed us at strategic parts in the body. We've considered it as the bride of Christ. Christ loved, he loved his church and he gave himself for it. We've been considering it as the flock of Christ under his shepherding care. And all of these descriptions, they're helpful to illuminate our understanding as to what we are individually, what our individual calling is, but not only what our individual calling is, what our collective responsibility is. There are many people, and they want to be strong, sturdy individuals within the church, and, and they want the church to go their way and do their thing. But we're part of the bigger picture. We're part of the collective gathering of the people of God. This text that we've chosen today, 1 Peter chapter 2 and 5, it gives us a picture of the church as a building, as the building of a house. Peter is addressing his remarks to the Jews of the dispersion, and they're scattered all abroad, right throughout the known world of their day. And some of them were disillusioned, because as New Testament Christians Jews that were converted, they looked back on the glory of the temple of the Old Testament days 
uh, and they felt that they were missing out on something. They felt that where they were was not where their forefathers were and there was something diminished. They lamented, some of those New Testament Christians, they lamented that the Christian church had no such glorious temple as their forefathers had to worship God as in Jerusalem. Neither did they have that ancient Levitical priesthood. And even some of them said, in comparison, even the services of the New Testament church lacked the grandeur and the pomp and the dramatic effects of all of the worship services in the temple. And so Peter, he started to unfold to them what the church was in these New Testament times. And he described the church as a building, a glorious building. And in so describing the church as a glorious building, the temple of the living God, he sought to answer some of their objections. Now his imagery here in 1 Peter chapter 2 is taken, <clears throat> as we have discovered over the past weeks from the pages of the Old Testament scriptures. We're building stone upon stone. When God's ancient people were brought out of Egypt, remember, brought up out of Egypt by the blood of the Lamb. In Exodus chapter 19 and verse 6, they were described as God's kingdom. That's interesting, isn't it? He was their king. Israel was his holy nation. And it was in the tabernacle that was erected in the wilderness and through the service of the Levitical priests that God would manifest his presence amongst that kingdom and amongst that people. They were a people, as they journeyed, they had the presence of God with them. Remember how the Egyptians were in darkness, but the Israelites were in light. The Egyptians didn't know the presence of Jehovah, but the Israelites dwelt in the presence of Jehovah. And we read how the Shekinah glory came to rest over the Ark of the, the, the Covenant in the tabernacle. And you can read the closing chapters of the book of Exodus, chapter 25 to chapter 40. And it's just, it's all about how God would manifest his presence amongst his ancient people. Now when the physical temple was built during the glorious reign of King Solomon, and the Ark of the Covenant was brought into the Holy of Holies, we read in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10 and 11, that the priests were come out of the holy place, that the cloud filled the house of the Lord. So that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. The glory of Jehovah filled the house of Jehovah. So it was the New Testament writers who accepted this idea. And they saw that the gathering of the local church likewise was comparable to the spiritual temple of the living God. And it's through this church local. And it's through this church global. That God is pleased to manifest his presence in the world. We read in Ephesians 2, 21-22. Paul took up the same idea. And he said, In whom all the building fitly framed groweth together unto an holy temple in the Lord. In whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. What is the church? The church today in the world. This professing visible body of Christ, the church, is God's habitation through his spirit. God dwells in his church. This holy temple, 
is where God and grace places sinners. He could have taken them straight to heaven, but that's not his plan. That's not his purpose. Here the imperfect are perfected, but never reaching perfection. What a thought. Here the converted are further sanctified and conformed unto the image of God's own dear Son, and yet they do not reach glorification until Emmanuel's land. So what sort of building then can house the presence of God and transform those who dwell in it? Because you and I could not dwell in God's presence and not be transformed. It's an impossibility. Peter describes it as a spiritual house. And I'd like to take time to open up this scripture with you today as the Lord enables and as time permits just to apply the lessons of what this spiritual house is in which the presence of God dwells and how it impacts and changes those who reside within it. So first let's consider the composition of this house. Its, its description is given to us right from the very foundation up. A building without a foundation will never stand. And so Peter starts by describing the foundation upon which this house is built. We read in verse 4, To whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Verse 6, Behold, it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious, and he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Here we have the foundation upon which the church is built, and it's a strong, indestructible rock, it's an immovable stone. It is a living stone. Verse 6, it's the chief cornerstone. Verse 7, it's this stone that's made the head of the corner. Now, if you're in any doubt who this stone is, well, this stone is the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul took it up and he said, You're therefore no more strangers and foreigners, Ephesians 2.19, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Verse 20, he said, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. How we rejoice today that it is Christ himself that is the chief cornerstone. The foundation was set before the very foundation of the world itself. The stone that the Jewish builders rejected has been made the chief cornerstone. Christ is elect and precious. And the whole construction, the whole edifice of the church, it rests on Christ and on Christ alone. He is the sure foundation. It is his invincible strength. It is his everlasting duration that makes it such a solid foundation for believers to build upon. And oftentimes as believers, we, we feel unsure. We feel even unsteady in the world in which we live, even our faith is assaulted and, and we feel as if our, our feet are slipping and when such is the, case, the occasion, we need to look again, we need to look again to the foundation for we've got a sure footing. I love all those old hymns that we often sing a uh, uh, 570, how firm a foundation you saints of the Lord is led for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said. You who unto Jesus for refuge have fled. What more can he say? 
He can say nothing more than he has said in his own word. And it's this elect stone that we're building upon. Jesus Christ himself. Peter proceeds from the foundation to outline the superstructure and the stones that were used in the construction. He describes them in verse 5 as lively stones. The word lively just means living. It's the same word that's used in verse 4. To whom coming is unto a living stone. So the lively stones of verse 5 are living stones. They're not dead, inanimate material. They're living. They're alive. They've got spiritual life. They've got the life of God within their soul. The whole structure of the building, hey, brethren and sisters, is used not with dead materials, but with living materials. Lively stones. What we, we, what we marvel at this. The Spirit of God in his sovereign operations, he quarries those stones out of the pit of lost humanity. By the Holy Ghost, he shapes them, he polishes them, and he places them in the building where he so designs them to be. And day by day, he's fashioning them. Day by day, he's squaring them. Day by day, he is positioning them, each one in the building, as he sees fit and according to his divine will. Now, the church of Jesus Christ is just like this spiritual house. By the mysterious operations of the Holy Spirit, those stones have been taken out of the quarry of lost humanity. They have been worked upon by the Holy Ghost. Life has been put into them. They are shaped, they are fashioned, they are made, likened unto his glorious image, and they're placed within the building. And do you know what makes the difference? They've been brought into contact with the living stone. Christ has changed them. Christ has made them alive. To whom coming as unto a living stone. We believe in the Free Presbyterian Church and a born again communicant membership. We believe that those who are in membership should be saved and born again by the Spirit of God, quickened by the Holy Ghost. The church is not bricks and mortars. We love this building. And we, we, we praise God for the provision of the building. But this building, glorious though it is to us, it's not the church. You're the church. You're the lively stones. That is part of the spiritual house, which is the local church here in Annalone. And now the most important question that I have to ask you today, and the most important question that you'll have to answer today is, do you know this life of God within your soul? Do you know the quickening, regenerating, changing power of God, the Holy Ghost within your soul? It's not enough to sit in those comfortable pews to enjoy the fellowship and everything else that goes with being part of the work here in the Money Dyer Road. It'll only be enough until, uh, 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 until you know the quickening power of God, the Holy Ghost within your soul. Now tell me today, are you born again? I'm not asking you when you made a profession of faith. I'm not asking you when you made a profession as a child or as a young adult or made a decision. I'm asking you sincerely, do you know the life of God within your soul? Because that's the real question. It naturally follows that all, 
of these uh, living stones in the building. They're all interdependent. If you have one brick, if you have one stone, if you have one block on its own, it'll never build you a house. It will never build you a house. It'll never properly function until it is put together with thousands of other bricks and blocks and stones. And no matter how shapely that stone is, no matter how polished up it is, no matter how colourful it is, no matter how full of character it is, it's only a stone if it's left on its own. And it's useless and it will be of no purpose whatsoever in, in, in the construction. It's just an ornament. Just an ornament gathering dust. But put that stone side by side with other lively stones and cement it together with those other lively stones. And now we have a different picture, don't we? We have lively stones that have a function and a purpose to play in the, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. What is the local church? The local church is a composition of individuals of lively stones who have been brought together and joined together by the Holy Ghost. And they have to be cemented together. They have to really stick together. And the local church cannot stand unless the believers are united together. So what unites us together? As was said in past weeks, it has to be more than just our fellowship. It has to be more than just our likeness for, for things that are common to us. What unites us together? It's our faith. It's what we believe. Imagine when they were building this church building. They, they, they brought a big lorry load as they brought many lorry loads of blocks onto this site. And, oh, there was so many blocks within that lorry load. But the men decided that they would take the blocks and they would just put them around the periphery of the site, this two-acre site, just to show people the blocks on the site when they came in. Would there have been any use? You know the answer to that. You know the answer. They had no purpose. They had no purpose until they were brought together. Unbelievers only will have a purpose. I'm saying this to you. And I want you to look at it in the light of membership and responsibilities that go with it. Believers have purpose in life when they are united in covenant to Christ, to his cause, and to his church. And this, of course, speaks to us of true biblical living membership. Membership in a local church is not just putting your name on a church roll. That's it, done and dusted now. Membership is something that's living. Imagine you're a member of the family and you never contribute anything to the family. You take everything from the family, but you never give anything back into the family. How would your family feel about that? How would the family prosper with such members within it? You know the, you know the answers to all of those questions. And it's just like that in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We just don't want membership that has a name on a roll. We want membership that's living, contributing. Striving together, battling together, pilgrimaging together to Emmanuel's land. I was talking to some of our brethren out in Kitali yesterday. Where they're doing construction work within the, the two mission board houses. And 
There's one of the walls they're going to take down in the house. And it's a very small incidental wall. It's just in a store. You wouldn't even see it if you were in the house. But it's a load-bearing wall. It's a load-bearing wall. It's keeping the roof up. So it is important. We are interdependent one upon the other, just like that. We are dependent one upon the other. Your part might be hid. Nobody might be able to see it. But I want to assure you, your part, you're holding others up. You're encouraging others in the work and in the Lord. You know, the question comes to all of us, just how, just how uh, dependable are you as a living stone? How can people put their weight upon you? Can they depend upon you? Just like that load-bearing wall, can the rest of the house rest upon you, knowing that quietly, sincerely, you'll do what you're meant to do? Dependable. And coming to the worship of God, dependable in serving God within the sanctuary, dependable in the prayer meeting. Read of one of those pastors in, in, in that lovely little book, Before They Leave the Stage. I commend it to you. You get it. It's published by day one. Al McNabb, he talks about going to his, his church. and Oh, there's a great crowd there on Sunday morning. And so he went down to the, 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 the church hall during the week before the prayer meeting and, and he put out all of these chairs because he believed if there's such a big crowd on Sunday morning, there was such a big crowd at the prayer meeting. But do you know what happened? They didn't turn up. And he told them the next Sunday about the seats that he put out and the seats that were empty. And I was very glad to read that he was able to testify that those seats were never empty again. People came to pray and to support the, the new pastor. That's dependability. When as God enables you, your seat is always occupied. In the prayer meeting. There's empty seats, brethren and sisters, in the prayer meeting and they're for you. And you should be in them. That's load-bearing. We don't want stones that are just scattered around the... There's something like two acres on this site here. Stones just scattered around this site will be, will be of little use to anyone. We want them united together in a living, a living, working relationship. I want you to notice, secondly, the spiritual character of the building. This is a spiritual house to offer up spiritual sacrifices. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ is first and foremost a spiritual house. That sets it apart. It is constructed for the spiritual benefit of those for whom it is built. Now, of course, we know for all the spiritual activities to function, there has to be practical application. So the physical has to be cared for. The personal input has to be there. Buildings have to be maintained and cleaned and plans have to be made and sites have to be looked after. And at times the church family comes together as a community to celebrate and, and to fellowship and to mourn and in times of trouble to support each other. And I recognize all of those different dimensions of the life of the local church. But this local church has to 
keep its priorities as the church of Jesus Christ has to keep its priorities. And we have to remind ourselves, what did God put us here in this money dire road to do? We're put here in the money dire road as a spiritual house to offer up spiritual sacrifices. I would commend to Ian Murray's biography of, of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the, the early years and the latter years, a wonderful read. He tells the story of Lloyd-Jones going to his first church in South Wales in Abervon in Port Talbert today in 1927. And when he went to that church at Sandfields, in order to bridge the gap with the outside world, remember these were post-war years, there was great declension amongst the non-conformist chapels in Wales, chapels that had been full prior to World War I, now were empty. And so the same logic then as we have today was then applied. So in order to reach the outside world, we have to provide activities that the world likes. So they started musical evenings. hundred years ago. Free church thought they invented them. No, they were there long beforehand. They started a football club. They started a, an amateur dramatic society in the church hall in order to reach the outside world. Did attendance increase? No. It still was on the wane when Lloyd-Jones arrived at the congregation. And when he arrived, they expected their new minister to put new life into these programs. I don't know whether they expected him to be the director of the, of the show or maybe the captain of the football club or, or whatever it was. But instead, Lloyd-Jones just emphasized the two worship services on the Sabbath day, the prayer meeting on Monday, and the Bible study during the week. Some of the members of the Dramatic Society were, were very perplexed by all of this and they went to Lloyd-Jones and the Dickens asked him, well, what are we going to do with the stage that's in the church hall? Because you're not using it anymore. And this was his advice to them. You can take it apart and put it in the boiler and heat the church with it. This did not mean that Lloyd-Jones was uninterested in reaching the outside world. I don't want you to think that. But he believed that the spiritual nature of the church was not advanced by approximating to themselves the methods of the world. You will not change the world by being like the world. That's the truth of what we're, we're learning here. And in starting his ministry in Sandfields, he believed that the fundamental need of the day was for the church to recover her spirituality. For the church to recover who she really was. And I think today we've lost something of that. We're grasping for ways to reach out to the unconverted in the world. And new ways to be relevant with the world. Those are all the buzz terms. How do we be relevant? We will lose our relevance. If we lose our spirituality. The church is described 
as a spiritual house, but I don't want you to think it's any less real because it's a spiritual house. Sometimes the spiritual is, is relegated, you know. It's only a prayer meeting type of scenario. It doesn't really matter. It's only the prayer meeting. We can miss it because it's only the prayer meeting. Paul makes it very clear, very plain. In 1 Corinthians 6 and 19, he said, What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? And so, in order to promote unity amongst the believers, these physical bodies of ours, he said, must be kept clean because we're not to defile the temple of the Holy Ghost. And if it's through individually, it's through collectively. What is this building? It's the temple of the Holy Ghost. These bodies of ours collectively put together. When we come together in his name, what are they? They are the temple in which the Holy Ghost resides and manifests himself here in this part of the vineyard and on along. The spiritual character of the church must be reflected in all that we do. I, I love that hymn and we've often sang it here. We love the place, O God, wherein thine honour dwells. The joy of thine abode, all earthly joys, excels. It is the house of prayer wherein thy servants meet. And thou, thou, O Lord, art there. Thy chosen flock to greet. We come. Together. To meet one with the other. To encourage one another. To see how each other are progressing. And just to give that word of encouragement. But we come primarily. To meet with the Lord. Who's there with his chosen flock to greet. That's the spiritual nature of this house. I want you to notice as we conclude today the holy conduct of those who serve in this building. The service is described <clears throat> as being under a holy priesthood. Every true believer in Christ is, a, is a, a priest unto God. The Levites were made priests by their natural birth, but a Christian is made a priest by the new birth. By the new birth, by regeneration, each one of you have been made a priest unto God. The Levites offered the, the daily sacrifice and kindled the fire within the tabernacle and in the temple. But the, the believer, likewise, is a holy intercessor. And he kindles that fire on the altar for God and he cries unto God for God's blessing in his own heart, in the hearts of his family, in the hearts of the local church. The Levites, they were set apart on how to instruct Israel uh, to approach unto God. You can only approach unto God through sacrifice. And the Christian church likewise today, this holy priesthood is set apart to teach the world. You can only get to God through the sacrifice of God's Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other way. This holy royal priesthood... <clears throat> Offers up spiritual sacrifices. I was thinking of some of those sacrifices that are outlined in the Bible. They're a sermon in and of themselves. I'll just list some of them for you. In Psalm 51 and 17, we read about the sacrifices 
of God or a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. We thought at the start of the year of the tender heart, and we should never despise the sacrifice of our broken spirit and a tender heart. God says, I'll not despise it. If you come with a hard heart, ask for God to tenderize it. In Romans 12 and 1, Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Here we are, and we're presenting ourselves before the Lord. We're saying, Lord, we're living, we're, we're living stones, and we want to be living sacrifices that you can use. In Philippians 2, 17, Paul again used this expression. He said, the sacrifice and service of your faith. Dear believer, where is the sacrifice and service in your faith? Where is it? We read in Hebrews chapter 13 and 15. By him therefore let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips giving thanks to his name. You know this is lovely. Sometimes I know as we sing we're conscious. And some of you think you can't sing. Everybody can sing. Every, everybody can sing. You just might, be able, might, might not be able to sing as good as somebody else. But everybody can sing. Just sing. Don't worry about who's behind you or in front of you. Just sing because you're offering the sacrifice of your praise. To who? No, definitely not to the one that's in front of you or behind you. To God. To God. We're singing to him. We're singing our praises to him. That's a wonderful thought, isn't it? These are just some of the sacrifices. And all such sacrifices, this verse tells us, they're only acceptable as we offer them by Jesus Christ. He's our starting. He's our finishing line. Without his blessing, without his mediation, without his intercession, all our sacrifices, they're all just in vain. Peter in this text, he, he gives us, I think, great insight into the spiritual work of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you never to forget it. The church is a spiritual house. It's a spiritual house. Everything else is relegated. Everything else is secondary. Uh, I, when I was reading through Ian Murray's account of, of uh, Lloyd-Jones taking up the ministry at Sandfields, I, I thought history is just ongoing. History just repeats itself time and time again. <clears throat> and Lloyd-Jones, when... It was the common practice in the church at Sandfields that when somebody professed faith in Christ, they came up to the penitent stool at the front and they signed a decision card. And not only that, he got them to sign the abstinence pledge. So not only did you uh, sign that you're going to follow Jesus, but you signed that you were never going to drink alcohol ever again in your life up at the front of the church. And so this is what he said. He said he never asked anybody to sign a pledge for anything. But he said, I feel like advocating that all members should sign another pledge. And that is a pledge of total abstinence from politics. For I believe that is causing greater harm in our churches in these days than almost anything else. 
I have no doubt, brethren and sisters, that our political differences in our own free Presbyterian church have obscured the spiritual nature and the work of the church. I'm not asking you to sign a pledge of total abstinence from uh, politics. I think that would be like asking the Ulsterman to stop breathing. But don't bring it into the church. Whatever your political views or non-political views, they are of no relevance in this building. Keep them outside the church. Let us do not allow anything to detract from conducting ourselves as a holy priesthood in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And whether it be politics or whether it be local personalities or personality differences or problems or whatever it is, we're believers. We're lively stones put together by a holy God called to offer up spiritual sacrifices to the praise and the glory of his great and his wondrous name. Isn't it a marvel that God took us out of the quarry of lost humanity, polished us, shaped us, and in his providence he put us here and on alone. Here. Where we're meant to be a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, offering up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. May the Lord help us to fulfill our calling in this fallen world that we live in, that we should show forth the praises of him who hath called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Thank you for listening. May the Lord bless his word and make it a help and an encouragement and a means of instruction to all of our lives.